0: Thanks for downloading today's Alumni Voices episode, I'm your host Josh Van Campen and today we're going live into Sydney with Director, Economic and Social Advisor at Urbis, Poppy Wise. Now Poppy, we're facing a global health crisis unlike in any history, especially in the 75 history of the United Nations, uh, one that is killing people, spreading human suffering and upending lives, but it's more than a health crisis, it is a human and economic and social crisis. Which groups have been left in a vulnerable position?
1: Um, you're totally right, Josh, and thanks for having me, that this health crisis has got huge economic and social impacts globally. Um, I think I heard yesterday, the day before, that the IMF is now predicting that we're going to suffer a really deep recession that looks more like a U-shape rather than a kind of V-shape bounce back, um, and that's all dependent on the scale of unemployment that we see, as well as the constraints, obviously, of our own economic slowdown, but also that of our trading partners and, what the impacts of sort of ongoing border closures are. Um, So in that context, there obviously has been a really comprehensive and rapid set of stimulus measures announced by the government already. Mm -hmm. Um, And within that, there are some well-documented groups who have been left out and so are especially vulnerable. Um, So they include the casuals who have been in the job for less than 12 months, many refugees and migrant workers, which I think we've heard less about in the media, Uh, And then obviously some sectors that aren't structured in a way that neatly fit the stimulus that is available. Uh, And I know we've heard a lot about the arts sector and I really... Um, loud lobby coming from the art sector for a bit of a bailout package for them. Um, there are also some other groups that are likely to suffer disproportionately. Um, the Grattan Institute released some modelling yesterday that said low-income workers are actually twice as likely to be economically impacted than those in higher-income jobs just because of the nature of the, the jobs that they do. Uh, and also half of teenagers are likely to lose their job. So there's some segments that we're kind of hearing less about that are likely to be disproportionately affected. Um, And another one that I think of is people who may have already been unemployed um, who now face a period of extended unemployment. When we look at the evidence in Australia, if you're unemployed for a period over 12 months, you, you, your future job prospects really, really diminish, and so the ongoing impact of COVID nineteen is likely to see that sort of segment of long term unemployed increase, which really raises that possibility of sort of entrenched disadvantage for that longer term, um, longer term unemployed group. Um, yeah, so there's some of the some of the the groups that we're hearing less about in the media that are also likely to to really suffer in a. Entrenched longer-term sense as a result of the shape and, and nature of the stimulus that's available at the moment. So it's a long list. <laughs> um, and that's just the economic picture. As you say, there's also the social picture, and that really comes down to the social distancing um, and the lockdown that we're currently experiencing, obviously. Uh, and for me, I think there's three main groups that I've been thinking about that are likely to be highly vulnerable as a result of that um, social distancing or physical distancing. Um, So in the age of kind of hashtag stay at home, uh, and that's, you know, stay at home to work, to learn, to recreate, to relax, all of those things, um, there are people who are not safe at home. Um, So there's obviously a huge concern about growing levels of domestic and family violence, um, as well as the protection of children, which I think, again, we're hearing less about in the media. And while the various supports that are available at a government and a community sector level. um, They seek to protect those who are known to be at risk, Um, so people who have come into contact with services before, people who may have made a police report. um, There is a huge proportion of those who are at risk in their homes who are not known to services. Um, In New South Wales, sorry to be New South Wales-centric, but I only know these numbers at the moment, um, more than four out of every five victims of domestic and family violence have never reported that to police. So you can see that that is a huge challenge in terms of protecting people who are unsafe at home. Um, and we can go in and talk more about how we might see sectors kind of tailoring their services. So the second group who are at risk uh, are those who are already pretty isolated. Um, and so the current regulations potentially exacerbate the negative impacts of social isolation. Mm. I think it's really unfortunate that... We've been um, given this term of social distancing because really it's physical distancing um, and uh, social distancing kind of undermines the fact that we can try to counter the effects of physical distancing by keeping people socially connected. Um, but I guess I'm really thinking about people who have mental ill health uh, and who don't have a lot of informal supports in their world. So in the, the community services world, we often think about formal support, so they may be, services and um, contracted supports who come into a home or conduct activities and so on. Mm. And then there's your informal support, so they're your family, your friends, your neighbours. Um, so particularly at the moment, we would see those informal supports falling away. Um, and so for people you know with a disability, people with mental ill health, the elderly, um, single person households, if those informal supports fall away, then we could really see that level of social isolation increasing
0: now you've talked about media side sort of stuff not giving enough attention is it fr- has it been frustrating for you that certain group have been discussed in the media and then there's these other groups uh, that have been forgotten about and is there anything that we can do as a society to raise awareness
1: um, yeah it's an interesting question i mean i wouldn't I wouldn't say it frustrates me I think it follows similar patterns in terms of groups in society that tend to get um, you know, that have well-funded lobbies, quite frankly, um, or uh, are just a bit have a bit more media currency than others. Um, so, you know, mental health has done a great job, I think, over the last 10 years to, to really fight for its place in kind of the everyday consciousness of Australians. Another group that I was thinking of that are particularly vulnerable at the moment um, are those who obviously can't transition their life really easily online and I think we think about the elderly and I think about you know banging my head against the wall when my mum needs help with Facebook yet again Um, but there's a sort of silent group in there which is a really large proportion of Australians who have a disability and some of those um, by reason of their disability are are excluded um, because of the sort of huge use of technology and so that's one group that I've been thinking of particularly we do this we do some work for a fantastic organisation called Remarkable who are a technology accelerator. Uh, so they, they pick up early-stage businesses who are particularly focused on improving digital inclusion for people with disability and I've been thinking a lot about the work that they do and hoping that, um, yeah, COVID-19 sees a bit of a, um, a jet propulsion of some of the work that those really important organisations are doing
0: will self-isolation risk making problems worse and how can we ensure people's mental health won't be affected throughout?
1: Um, I think there's no simple answer to this question uh, and it really depends on individual circumstances. Um, You know, I've personally felt as though the last week has been full of conversations about how much people are kind of enjoying the silver linings of isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been doing a lot of reading and listening, um, you know, to stories about the rekindling of kindness for people who might be isolated, the sort of concerted efforts of people to keep in touch. Um, I heard Hugh McKay, who's in his 80s, doing a podcast yesterday and he was saying, I'm busier than ever because everyone's reaching out. Mm. Um, And also just the general sort of stripping away of that busyness, refocusing people on family and home and children seeing more of their working parents. Um, You know, that potentially has an upside. Mm. We also need to face the fact that COVID-19 is likely to see Know, rises in domestic and family violence and other forms of abuse and, and potentially, as you say, that increase in the severity of pre-existing conditions that are exacerbated by isolation. Um, so to go back to the idea of mental health specifically, my role at IRBUS, we do a lot of review of mental health programs and what we do is conduct a range of research to understand what are the factors in those programs and services that really work And what are the things that are less effective? And one of the things that comes up time and time and time again, particularly for services aimed at people with relatively severe and persistent mental health issues, is that we need to reduce social isolation for these people. Mm. Um, And so that's obviously a real concern at the moment, given lots of the the group activities um, that are aimed at building social connectedness will be on pause at the moment. Um, so there will be a lot of work to transition some of that online, um, but that obviously comes with challenges. Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, the potential to um, see the severity of, of isolation and the impacts of that for people with mental health challenges is absolutely huge.
0: You touched on before about, you know, domestic and family violence. Uh, how can we focus time and resources into it? Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah, the question about domestic and family violence is a really complex one because of that prevention issue Um, and I'd also add child protection in here as a huge issue as well and I think I mentioned earlier the the really low levels of reporting of domestic violence. So in New South Wales, that's 80% of women and 95% of men um, have never reported an experience of domestic violence. So that makes prevention in any world challenging, um, but it's even more challenging in a world of lockdown where that risk is is really high, just purely due to increased exposure. Um, The federal government has announced $1.1 billion for expanded community services, and some of that will go to domestic and family violence, Um, and I think we'll see the sector start to translate that funding into services that are tailored to the COVID-19 era. Um, I can't think of specific examples at the moment, but things might include like a different approach for contact with those who are known to be at risk in terms of just more regular um, contact with those who have consented to be contacted and and, and to have had an experience of family violence. Um, And then we may also see an injection of funding into kind of community communications, encouraging those who are experiencing a difficult time because of lockdown to seek help and or make a report, um, I think that sort of sort of community-level communication may start to emerge.
0: Over 4 million Australians have a disability. How can the disability and health sector support these Australians, but how can we as a society support them too during COVID-19?
1: Yeah, I think the issues for the disability sector are sort of similar to those that... Um, we discussed in terms of people just being more isolated and thinking about how we can support them. Mm -hmm. Um, And and regular disability support services are likely to continue uh, much in the same form. Um, Certainly that's considered an essential service. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, But there will be, as we said, in relation to mental health services, be a suspension of kind of group activities and, again, that reduction of the informal supports that might come from family and friends. Um, And there's also that issue I mentioned of the barriers in relation to online participation for some people with disability, um, all issues for consideration when kind of tailoring those approaches. Um, So, again, I think it's a bit early to say. um, I don't have any examples that come to mind specifically that that I've read or heard about in the disability sector yet, but certainly services will be tailored with that Um, In mind around how do we reach people and engage them to reduce the isolation online if possible, if that's not possible, how else do we increase that level of support when perhaps their informal supports have fallen away.
0: Do we fall into maybe that assumption that everyone has access to resources online?
1: Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, as I said, Remarkable, this really cool group who are, um, they were started by the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. They're specifically focused at reducing um, digital exclusion for people with disability because it's a huge issue. Um, we, we do just fall into that assumption that everyone is able to um, you know, physically operate a mouse and a keyboard or that they have the, the, the vision or the hearing to experience online in the same way that... Um, that we do, uh, and it's it's a really dangerous assumption. Um, so some of the, the examples of businesses that have gone through this this tech accelerator to improve inclusion for people with disability do include things about um, improving access to, to online services.
0: Now you're the director of Urbis. You're a former board member for Social Impact Measurement Network of Australia. Will we see an emergence of a different social impact measurement from this pandemic?
1: Um, yeah, I think a couple of things will happen. Um, you know, firstly, I hope uh, that this will be an exercise in continuous improvement. Mm. Um, I think the the possibility of a global pandemic, it always, you know, is present in scenario planning, obviously, at a state, national and international level, um, but no one can... Can never predict the exact nature of how something like this would unfold so the measurement does need to be developed on the run to a certain extent um, and that would apply to the clinical reporting of the pandemic um I think if you're an ABC news geek like me you would have noticed that the the initial reporting was focused around infection death and recovery rates and then it sort of shifted with time to talk about daily infection rates as a better measure of of severity and spread so that's an example of how the data recording and recording um, it, it is shifting with time. Um, and if you think about those kind of headline clinical stats, their measurement is less ambiguous than thinking about some of the social impacts. Um, they're obviously still unfolding around us and they're quite hard to measure. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's better to start measuring early. Um and improve the exact nature of measurement as you go, and I hope that that is what is underway in the sectors affected. In in my line of work, we actually often talk to clients about not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good um, because there is that tendency to want to absolutely perfect measurement approaches um, before getting started and that can just waste a lot of time and obviously waste a lot of valuable learning opportunity. So I think given the outbreak is likely to occur, although it does look like we may be approaching an, an eradication solution in Australia, but, but if the outbreak does occur in waves, what we're measuring now is going to be really critical in terms of management in the future. So First. another thing I wanted to say about measurement, and that was that the, the measurement of resilience I think is going to be a big issue. Um, Again, New South Wales focus, sorry, but New South Wales Premier um, Berejiklian announced a few weeks ago that she'll be establishing an agency called Resilience New South Wales. And that's to support New South Wales to recover not only from COVID-19, but also the bushfires drought that we've experienced. Um, and I think other states and territories will probably do similar. And it obviously comes with a budget. and New South Wales will want to know that that budget has been spent wisely. And so that means you need to measure resilience. No. Um, and that can be really... Really tricky um, because you're measuring things that are often subjective or ambiguous in nature. Yeah. Um, I've done some work measuring community resilience, um, focusing specifically on young people and their ability to kind of bounce back when experiencing um, uh, a sense of sort of being excluded from society. Um, and what we're doing there is measuring things like young people's sense of belonging and their, their hope for the future. And you can see that's obviously much trickier to measure than something like hospital admissions. Um, so I think the the measurement around resilience, which also applies in a sort of disaster recovery context, uh, is going to be one that gets a lot of attention uh, over, the, over the coming months and years.
0: So getting that data, how... Are you able to get the data? Is it through surveys? Is it face-to-face communication? Is it how does that all work?
1: Yeah, so we do a range of primary and secondary research to to undertake the work that I do. So essentially, we're we're advising governments and not-for-profits and private sector organisations on how effective their policies, programs, and services are. And what we would do is design a data collection approach, and that would often draw on as you say, financial data, like how much money did you spend here here, and there, but also primary research, going and talking to the actual service recipients or going and talking to the staff who are delivering programs, talking to the policymakers themselves to understand what the kind of origins and objectives were. Um, and then I sort of often refer to it as a bit of a tapestry. We've gathered all this data and then it's like weaving together a bit of a tapestry of all these different data sources to, to answer the question of how effective... An intervention or a policy or a program has been um, and where we could make tweaks to improve it um, and and where you might revise um, to improve the outcomes over time
0: have we also seen i guess this pandemic provide an opportunity for governments and businesses and people to take stock of the social impact they're making in their community
1: definitely um, i think undoubtedly there's going to be a huge review of the health system's ability to respond to the crisis um, But as you say, there's sort of the other longer term to consider outside of that clinical health space. Um, I've been kind of dying to break free of lockdown, I have to say, and getting in a room with other social researchers um, and really sort of nerd out over what we might see in the longer term. Um, You know, there's questions around the workplace, like how much do we all really need to be in an office and Mm -hmm. and finally put a value on face-to-face collaboration. Um, There's questions about the impacts on family life and will we find that less hurried and harried nature of family life is actually good for some um, on local communities I know I feel this sort of real focus on the local um, and are we going to see a continuation of that and I could kind of go on and on about all the the longer term impacts that we might see as a result of COVID-19 mm. uh, and also the the delivery of support services as we've been talking about has kind of been quite a a huge and swift transition among many um, businesses and support services to transition online. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how much of that that sticks and we decide that actually we discover better ways to do things. Inevitably also be a range of things we haven't thought about yet, which is really fascinating. What are they going to be the unexpected outcomes of the COVID-19 era that we haven't considered? Yep. Um, and, you know, there will be loads and loads of lessons emerging at all levels in terms of, opportunities to acknowledge um, the excellence of what was achieved but also opportunities to, to, to think um, you know how would we do different things differently be it another wave of the pandemic or um, how would we do things differently you know should there be some other incidents of social isolation in our future.
0: You're talking about opportunities, and there 's an opportunity for us to ask some questions. so what essential questions should we ask about how well our policies, systems, and delivery models responded to the challenge of this unexpected threat?
1: Mm. I mean I think just it's, my my key, my key message here would be that it 's never too early to evaluate and to start asking those questions, mm. um, and the questions are so radically different depending on the context. I think you know in a clinical health setting. You look at the numbers, and it looks as though Australia's response in terms of the spread of the virus has been among the best globally. Um, uh, So, from a clinical health perspective, I think it's probably quite clear in terms of the questions that we need to ask around um, detection, um, testing, and reduction of spread, contact tracing, etc., etc. How we'll deal with the economic and the social impacts, um, I think, is is a longer-term question, um, and again, really varies depending on whether you're thinking about a, a mental health setting, a violence setting, and so on. Um, but once the the acute nature of the crisis does pass, it will be reflect important to kind of reflect on what's happened, and that reflection might be really informal and simple, um, getting individuals in a business or a service together um, to ask a couple of questions around. Um, what was our response how could our response have been improved what do we want to learn from this and moving forward and embed into our business or our service moving forward um, or you might be thinking about some sort of more formal evaluation um, to go to that sort of deeper level of analysis and that can help service providers and policymakers look at the evidence um, and make sense of that experience and determine, again, what worked well and what could be improved. I guess critical to that is just ensuring that data is being captured along the way. Um, Of course, it's really tempting to just deal with a crisis and forget about data, Um, but it it will be important, I think, for organisations to start thinking, as I said, as early as possible about capturing some of those learnings, and that could be just as simple as a few key, key indicators in their data moving forward so they've got some evidence to reflect upon in the future.
0: Is it important for us to reflect and see where Australia ranks in the response compared to the rest of the world?
1: Um, I think it's important for us to reflect on how we could improve. Mm. Um, personally, do we want to sort of, you know, chest beat and say we did better than others? I don't know how important that is. Um, but, yeah, certainly in terms of just learning lessons for the future um, to to not only... Um, improve our own services but i'm sure there's going to be a huge amount of um you know cross border information sharing about Mm. the best way to deal with COVID. so the more that we can learn about our what looks to be strong response at this point that can be shared with with others um then that's a great thing too
0: and are you starting to evaluate i guess kind of what works already
1: um, I'll, I have to fess up here and say I'm on parental leave at the moment. So, um, I am not in the day-to-day of the business at the moment, um, although I do know that we're starting to see um, opportunities come out at a state and federal level in terms of measurement of responses to COVID-19. Um, so absolutely, I just can't give you any detail around it because I'm enjoying another isolation.
0: You know, I had to ask that because we were talking before this podcast about you know one of the positives of you being able to be you know at home with your young daughter and also with your husband working at home as well. It's actually created it's been an opportunity to spend more time with the family.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's going to be a really thing I- interesting thing about evaluation too. Is obviously we're looking to ask the right questions in terms of what was the response, how could it be improved moving Mm. forward, but also not to forget um, to capture, again, some of those unexpected outcomes. Like, you know, again, we're hearing lots and lots of stories from all the edges of the community around some of the silver linings of um, what's going on at the moment. And I think capturing some of those learnings will be important too in terms of, encouraging community health well-being and safety moving forward
0: now i want to go back to your time at uwa you did a you studied a bachelor of arts Mm -hmm. did you ever think about oh this is going to be your your job after you
1: Uh, uh i i sort of did actually because i i took a gap year between high school and my time at uwa and i Um, started in a research company Um, so I started in a company that was at the time called Market Equity Um, and I was doing a sort of um, office admin churning out PowerPoint slides and so on type job for a year before I started my my um, at the time was an arts and a law degree and I started to become really interested in research. Uh, and I think by the time I resigned from that gap year job and I said, oh, I've got to go and actually do my studies now, they'd seen that I'd shown a real interest in this world of research and they asked me to stay on. And so actually the, the research job was my part-time job the whole time I was studying. Um, and as I said, I started doing a double degree in arts and law and after two years of, I have to say, sorry, suffering through the legal studies, I decided that that was not for me. Um, and that I really, really was loving this world of research. And s- essentially, for me, my experience of an arts degree was that it was much like um, the research that I do now, where you're plunging into um, a range of different information to answer questions and develop a coherent argument and provide the evidence for that argument. Um, I do remember describing my job to someone a couple of years ago, a really close friend of mine was sitting on a beach at Rotness actually. She said, tell me what you actually do. And I sort of described it in terms of gathering information. She said, oh, like a uni project. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. A bit like a uni project. <laughs> um, so, yes, my job was on my mind. Um, but I actually did go down a path of doing initially sort of commercial and marketing research. So I was working for um, car companies and banks and Um, past moving consumer goods companies and I did that really happily for about seven years and then I just found myself looking for more kind of meaning in my work and I was really lucky that I could pick up um, the skills of being a qualitative and a quantitative researcher Mm -hmm. and apply it more in the policy space, which felt like it was more focused on improving outcomes, particularly for disadvantaged people, Um, and that's really where I found myself working um, these days and is hugely rewarding. Um, so yeah, I feel very lucky that I was able to kind of make that pivot, um, after about, yeah, as I said, I think the seven years of sort of doing the commercial work and then deciding I wanted to be more in the policy world.
0: So where did the passion come from for wanting to make a difference for those that are disadvantaged?
1: Interesting question. I think it was an experience for me of living in New York as a child. Um, so, my family, I was born in Melbourne and we moved to New York when I was seven years old. And so that was, giving away my age here, 88. And um, it was a very different New York from the New York we see today. Uh, mm-hmm. Height of the AIDS epidemic, huge homelessness problems, still a lot of visible petty crimes on. And I think it just blew the mind of mm-hmm. my sheltered seven year old self. Um, and yeah, I think it showed me that the world can be a really unfair place, and that never left me. Mm,
0: interesting. That's that's really interesting because when I've I've been to New York about three times now, and yeah, I've it's you know it's generally a pretty clean city considering how many uh, tourists and have come through. But I am blown away by when you've seen some old footage of you know the seventies and eighties of just how dirty the place was. Yeah, like, it was
1: a totally different city. It was a totally different city. Yeah. So what
0: what 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 turned it? Mm.
1: Um, I hope I've got this right. I'm not 100% sure on the history, but I know there was absolutely a sort of crackdown um, on homelessness and um, petty crime, and I'm fairly sure it was under Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, Um, and there was just a sort of zero tolerance on um, people sleeping on the streets and petty crime, and I'm not in any way endorsing that as an approach. Um, but it did have a fairly swift effect in terms of um, cleaning up the streets.
0: Mm. Uh, Well, that's all the time we've got, but if people want to learn more about your story or learn more about Herbis, where should they visit?
1: Um, Visit the Herbis website, uh, so herbis.com.au and uh, you can always, if you're interested in the work that I do, um, find me on LinkedIn.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Well, Bobby, thank you so much. Stay safe, stay at home there in Sydney, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks.